0: Do you mind if I smoke?
1: It won't affect the test. Alright, I'm going to ask you a series of questions. Just relax and answer them as simply as you can. You've got a little boy. He shows you his butterfly collection, including the killing jar.
0: I'd take him to the doctor.
1: You're listening to a podcast. Suddenly, you realize there's a wasp crawling on your arm.
0: Which podcast?
1: It doesn't matter. Just answer the questions, please.
0: Which podcast?
1: Um, Now Playing, the movie review podcast hosted by Stuart, Jacob, and Brock. The movie series being reviewed is the Philip K. Dick series with such classic films as Blade Runner, Total Recall, and Minority Report.
0: I go to nowplayingpodcast.com every Friday to download a new episode of the series.
1: You hear a warning that these podcasts will be full of spoilers.
0: I hit pause, watch the movie, and then listen to the podcast.
1: You're reading a magazine. You come across a full-page photo of a naked woman.
0: Shh, what the questions? The podcast is starting. Today we're talking about Minority Report, starring Tom Cruise, Colin Farrell, Samantha Morton, Max von Sydow, and directed by Steven Spielberg. This is Brock, co-host of Now Playing.
2: Stewart in L.A.? And this is Jacob. If I planned one of your murders, you just don't know which one yet, unless you got a precog around.
0: <laughs> Uh-oh, red ball coming. Yeah. <laughs> Speaking of things that you should see coming, you know, it's amazing. I was thinking all of these podcasts we've done, this is the first Steven Spielberg that we've actually reviewed for Now Playing.
2: Yeah, this is, like, big time. I, I think this may be, at least for directors, the biggest director we've done. You know, there's Scorsese, but, you know, he's more for the artsy crowd, I guess. Spielberg's got a wide appeal. This is big.
0: Yeah, James Cameron, though, he's a slouch, I tell you. We got nothing on him, you know.
2: Yeah, there's a difference between a Cameron and a Spielberg, though. I mean, Spielberg brings a history behind him. Cameron, he sunk a boat and had some blue people try to save a tree. And a killer robot comes back from the future.
3: Yeah, I'm going to disagree with all of this, except that I am excited, too, to be finally talking about Spielberg. He is a big force in cinema in the last 30 years.
0: I mean, obviously, though, he doesn't do horror movies and no killer robots for him. Well, I guess AI, maybe. But anyway, the point is that if you think about it for just a quick second, yes, it makes complete sense, but it doesn't make it less surprising to me that this is the first Steven Spielberg movie we've had an opportunity to review. And, wow, any chance I get to watch a Steven Spielberg movie, good or bad, it's fun for me, given that he is the director that I grew up with as the guy. He is the director of my childhood. Whether or not we like all the movies or not, well, we can do a Steven Spielberg retrospective one day. But it's just kind of cool that we finally get around to doing him. Now, of course, this is also, talk about Big Fish. This is the first Tom Cruise movie we've reviewed also for Now Playing. Yep, and the first and time they were excited better. about that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, obviously, we're going to have our first Ben Affleck as we go on in this series. We had our first Harrison Ford, surprisingly. So, yeah, this series with Philip K. Dick is attracting the talent.
3: Yep, and this is the first time these two have worked together as well. It's kind of really part of a Spielberg trilogy. He kind of went into a dark sci-fi mode. He had just wrapped up his Kubrick collaboration, artificial intelligence, AI, and this was the second one, and then he would follow it up again, Tom Cruise, War of the Worlds. So let's just get into it, I guess. I'm going to try, really try, to give a concise plot summary. Which Why does you, every look.
2: plot summary start that way? We're going to try really <laughs> hard. It mean, must be a Philip K. Dick thing.
3: Yes, it is. This one is dense. And i got to say, the Philip K. Dick story, you know I'm reading them all over at Books and Nachos, is far less intricate. In this screenplay, we got here. There are many more moving parts going on. I'm going to try to pare it down to the basics.
0: Ahem. <laughs> finger turns the page.
3: <laughs> the year is 2054. Again,
0: and... with the freak.
3: No, no. This is 20 <laughs> years it...
0: earlier than most yeah. of our films.
2: <laughs> <laughs> it's a huge change.
3: It is. It's a relief. And the high murder rate in Washington, D.C. has dropped off to nothing in the six years. A controversial program known as pre-crime has been running under Captain John Anderton, played by our megastar Tom Cruise. So basically how it works is this. They've got a drug-induced trio of clairvoyants who are also known as pre-cogs. And they can identify future killers and victims in a vision they project to Anderton and his SWAT team who then kind of sift through these projections with a magic glove and then rakes off to the crime scene and stop this horrible murder from happening before it even takes place. They collar the would-be murderer and they go off to jail without having actually been the murderer. Now, there's some controversy in the public that people are being put away for things they don't actually ever do. But there are other people who are saying these psychics are infallible and godlike. So it's about to be put up for a whole debate. There's going to be a public vote for whether pre-crime should be implemented for the entire nation. Now, that's really going to get these precogs working. I mean, they're already spitting gumballs out right and left, but I don't know how they would handle the whole country, but that's the plan. Edgerton is a firm believer that pre-crime works, and that's partly because he wishes he could go back in time and have foreseen the kidnapping of his son, Sean, about a decade before. We're not entirely sure what the timeline is, We know that Sean was abducted at a public pool long before there was psychics and pre-crime and Anderton was doing the job he's doing now. But the irony is this hunter becomes the hunted when the psychics finger Anderton for the murder of Leo Crow, a guy that Anderton has never even heard of. And they say he's going to kill him in three days. So Anderton believes this is all a setup and goes on the run from his pre-crime comrades and tries to learn more about the history of the precogs, find their weak link in their system of justice, and get his name cleared. So he eventually learns that sometimes these three psychics don't always agree on how the future is going to look, and that if one of them has a dissenting opinion, it's called a minority report and gets stored deep inside their head, buried, because no one is to know about the fact that these three don't always agree.
0: Because that way it would show some fallibility in the system, and therefore if there's not 100% certainty that the precogs absolutely work, the system cannot go national.
3: And I think we're going to debate that later, what the ratio of working to not working means, and whether if one innocent person goes to jail, if that should abolish the whole system. That's certainly what this movie is going to ask, and we'll get into that in a bit. But let me try and wrap up the plot here. Anderson goes on a very elaborate plan break into pre-crime headquarters and kidnap the most powerful precog agatha so that he can get that minority report and prove that he was not going to kill leo crow or anyone but despite his efforts anderton pretty much plays out the future agatha prophecies until he's standing right there in the hotel room as she envisioned aiming a gun at leo crow who is claiming he is the man that kidnapped and murdered his son and Anderton has no problem, and this is where things get really complicated. If it isn't already, Anderton resists the urge to pull the trigger at the moment that it was foretold, although he'd really like to, because he wants to prove that he has mastery over his destiny, and inadvertently he proves that pre-crime doesn't always work. So it's kind of a paradox there. Leo Crow turns out to not be the guy he thought he was, but an alias of a man who just wanted to commit suicide without it affecting his life insurance policy. And he was set up by Anderton's mentor, Lamar Burgess, played by Max von Sydow. The last third of this movie involves Anderton and his estranged wife, Laura, uncovering Burgess's dark secret that he killed precog Agatha's mother six years ago when she came to him and tried to take Agatha back into her custody. She had been a druggie, they had taken her away, And now she was clean and she wanted her kid back. If she did, that would be the end of pre-crime because Agatha is the strong one. She's the one of the three that without her, they cannot foresee these murders. So Burgess creates a paradox for himself. In order to protect a murderless Washington, D.C., he has to murder Agatha's mother. And that killing doesn't stop once Anderson starts sniffing this out. He's framed for the Leo Crow murder. There's more murders. And basically, this all builds up, gets worse and worse for Burgess until he's standing there pointing a gun at his friend and protege, Anderton, with a real bind. He can either pull the trigger and kill Anderton and go to jail, just as the precogs have prophesied, or he cannot pull the trigger and then prove that precrime doesn't always work and they'll shut down his life's work. And so... Rather than make either one of those choices, he turns the gun on himself, and pre is disbanded because it is shown to be fallible. Anderton gets back together with his wife, and they decide to have another baby, and the precogs are set free from their drug-induced stupor and try to have some kind of life off in the countryside. There's a lot more going on in this movie, but that is basically the framework I have for you. I say, guys, let's just get into it. Let's get into the setup of this movie, and talk about how they set up pre-crime. What are your thoughts? What do you think of this world?
2: I love the fact that crime is solved by a Rube Goldberg device. You know, <laughs> you, got this, you got these visions. They go to this screen. It, it sets off this laser, which carves a ball, prints a name in it. It rolls down a tube. I, it's actually a very cool visual, and I, I'm going to have some problems with this movie's, but the visuals aren't one of them. I like the way... Spielberg sets up how pre-crime works the the really cool futuristic touchscreens you know you think the iPad is fancy it's nothing compared to these uh, police monitors where they're flipping things around with the you know it's like a Nintendo Power Glove on crack I love the visuals that Spielberg sets up for this pre-crime laboratory. Look,
0: Well, yeah, and that's the first thing we see is how the pre-crime works. It opens up with a vision of the murder in the beginning of this movie that sets the whole thing up about how precognition works. But it did crack me up that Tom Cruise has a power glove, and I thought the power glove too, by the way. The power glove moving the windows around all over the place, back and forth, and... It comes out on a piece of wood. <laughs> Why wouldn't it come out on a screen? I mean, come on. What's with the piece of wood in the future? That cracked me up. But, yes, it, it's a really cool visual thing. And with that visual hand moving everything around, it really immerses you in this futuristic world of what they're doing and how they're doing it. And it's it was such a stunning visual back then. And now, even though I know it's there, it certainly is something that... I, I can't even describe how it immerses you into this movie, but it grabs you instantly into what exactly is going on here. I was a little
3: disappointed no gum spat out at the end of the machine, but I got to (laughs) say it makes a lot of sense that it would be this strange object that they come out as spheres because they want to prevent any chance of there being fallibility, and they don't want anybody to be able to create a fake. So in order to do that, they have this ball system. They take a specific piece of wood and it's colored. Right. If you premeditate a crime, it comes out three days earlier on a brown ball. Or if it's a crime of passion with no premeditation, it's a red ball. They got to act fast and it shoots out and they usually have less than an hour to handle that one.
0: Right. And then they have to figure out they, they get who it is who's going to get murdered. They get who is going to do the murdering. But they don't get where. And so the detectives are needed to try to figure and piece together where this crime will take place. And that's kind of fun, too, to see how they do that. The whole opening scene, setting the whole precognition thing up, is quite well done.
3: It's really intense. I mean, we basically see this couple that we'll never see again in the movie. But it's a woman who's having an affair. Her husband is... Getting ready for work, he's suspicious. There's a man across the street at a park that's eyeing them. He knows something's up. He tries to get his wife to meet him for lunch, and she's resistant to the idea. And sure enough, even though our sympathy should be with him because he's a man whose wife is cheating on him as soon as he walks out the door for work, We're really fearful because we've seen the precognition vision and we know he's going to take some scissors and totally kill these people right there unless Tom Cruise and his SWAT team swoop down and take care of it. And it's an intense scene. I got to say, even watching it again and knowing what the outcome would be. It's really exciting.
0: Let's talk about this really right now because the first time it comes up is right here. The movie's really washed out with the white, especially in this opening scene when they go to the brownstone and capture Ari Gross. Was that distracting you two to have that washed out lighting, and what exactly is that saying? Because I wasn't really sure at the point of having it completely washed out the whole movie. Is it because the future is so weird and dim with this precognition, people being accused and being convicted and put away for things they didn't quite do, Is it mean that the whole future is hazy?
3: Possibly. I mean, for one thing, I think it's just a stylistic device. This is a dark movie. Spielberg is not trying to make His typical, you know, there's a way he used to light where there are eye rims and and just bright light coming out of places where no light should be coming out of. And there's a childlike fantasy, usually, to his movies. This movie looks different. It does have a smeary, hazy look to it. Maybe the only thing I can add to that is the precogs, in order to have the visions, are doped up and living in a pool. And there is kind of a shimmery, murky water quality to all of the images that we see. It is almost like the film is existing underwater.
0: Yeah, because actually the movie opens up with that water image of the 20th Century Fox, but I took that to be the the precogs' pool of milk, their stimulants to keep them alive.
3: It's a bold choice. I rarely see Spielberg taking these kinds of chances with his cinematography. He's usually known for storyboarding and lighting things a certain way, and here it does look more like a traditional film noir mystery movie you would see Black and white, of course, back in the 40s. And this is a mystery story. It is very much a detective story, even though it's science fiction.
2: Stuart, you brought up that this is getting into the detective story. It's noir. And here's one of the things I noticed. I was kind of comparing this with another detective noir sci-fi movie we've talked about, Blade Runner. And talking about the intro, you know, just getting absorbed in this whole pre-crime lab and how they go about solving these crimes... I found that this movie overall Spielberg does some world building here there 's a definite vision for the future that he has, but I found he was much tighter, much more concise than Ridley Scott was in Blade Runner, where Scott would spend you know literally minutes just showing people walking around with their glowing lightsaber umbrellas and riding bicycles. I felt Spielberg he he was doing something similar you know he would have these huge shots of these automated cars and these billboards that would address you as they read your uh, retinal scan. But he did it much more tighter, much more concise. I got a feeling for what this world was like, but he also tied that into the story much tighter than in something like Blade Runner, where Scott was going for the same feel.
3: I attribute that to Spielberg being a storyteller and really Scott being a, a visionary. You know, Scott can make things look great. I don't ever feel like he's in total command of the story, but Spielberg... Everything exists in a Spielberg so that he can give you information. And this movie is just downloading information. Every scene, every moment, every bit of dialogue has some kind of payout later. It's almost too much to take. And I love that feeling when a movie can almost overwhelm you and yet you still feel like you know what's going on in the moment at that time. I think it's really impressive, the juggling act that they do here.
0: I completely agree with you. I think this movie is so smart, and it does not treat the audience like a moron. So to to make sure the audience does know what's going on, though, after the first pre-crime, they give us a Mr. DNA-type explanation of what pre-crime is with a commercial about pre-crime. So that gives people a primer. And then Colin Farrell's character is basically, he's a guy coming in from the government asking questions about pre-crime to make a determination whether or not he should advocate or his boss should advocate pre-crime to go national. So he's there asking all sorts of questions us, the audience, have about how the system works. So he is there for us. It's done in a way that we can all follow it. Even all these cool bells and whistles and all these fantastic visuals, it really comes down to the story being strong enough, told, that we can follow what's going on and not being confused, but yet again, wondering exactly why. Like, for example, Jacob mentioned the billboards reading the retinal scans so they addressed you personally. That's the kind of stuff that all of us, the First time you see this movie, you're like, oh, that's so cool and wow. But on the other hand, they don't spend a lot of time explaining that to you. It just is there because it's the time. And that's so cool.
3: Yeah, the tech is wonderful in this. And I could have spent the whole movie gawking at all of the technology and the way that it's implemented. But it's all in service of this mystery story. Exactly. really not asking you to be wowed by the world in the way that Ridley Scott literally lets time grind to a standstill and just – dares at 2019 Los Angeles Spielberg is often running I mean I Tom Cruise has a line somewhere in there early on where everybody runs and I just feel like including this movie it just it gets going and it never ever stops
0: everything they had in this future which was cool ended up being part of the story or happened in the background or happened before to establish it's going to happen later without beating you over the head with it. It's very subtle, very clever, very quick, very well done, very slick.
3: Yeah. And one thing you mentioned Colin Farrell's character, he is there to help us understand what is going on because he's asking questions, but he also sets up a really interesting debate that plays out through the whole movie. Yes. And it should be noted. He's Irish Catholic. He's always kissing his rosary. He sort of represents the religious aspect, because this is a world in which science is almost replacing God. These precogs are treated like gods. They live in something called the temple. There are a trinity of them. And when you're nabbed for your bad deeds, they slap a halo on you. And that's how they imprison you. It's, it really is saying that science can replace Christianity. And here comes the doubter in the form of this Irish Catholic Whitwer, Colin Farrell, to really challenge that. And he and Cruz will be not only chasing each other physically but really having this debate out for the rest of the movie.
0: This is the first time I ever saw Colin Farrell in a movie. And I thought he was quite good in this movie. I thought he went toe-to-toe with everybody here and really did his job. It could have been a really thankless role in this kind of movie. Uh, he really brought something extra to the table, and it was it was very welcome.
3: It reminded me of Tommy Lee Jones in the same way that usually these hard-ass, we got to nab our man People aren't people you like and you don't want to follow. He's just as charming. He's always chewing gum, and there's just something cool and and irreverent about him. Yeah, I agree. I'm a Colin Farrell fan. Even though I don't think he's made a lot of good movies, he's always fun to watch in whatever he's doing.
2: And he really plays a thankless role in this movie. You you think he's a villain the entire time until... His final outcome, where you finally realize that, hey, maybe he's a good guy, and then boom, he's dead. Uh, (laughs) So thankless role, but he, he really dives into it and and runs with it.
3: It's hard to pull focus on you when you're starting in a movie with Tom Cruise, and everything is there to exist to make Tom Cruise look cool and great, and Colin Farrell does go toe to toe, you're right.
0: So we have Colin Farrell explaining what's going on with the technology and, and going on with what's going on with Precogs, you have Tom Cruise, who is Mr. I love this stuff during the day. During the day, he is the man who is fighting pre-crime. He is the man who is going to stop all this bad stuff, and he is Mr. Company Man. But at night, he is haunted by the memory of his lost son, and he is a drug addict to help him free his mind of this horrible tragedy that happened to him. He watches videos and all that kind of thing at night, and I find that interesting.
3: What do you mean interesting?
0: I find it very interesting that they went that far.
3: Well, use another word. When you say interesting, I think you're saying challenging. Do you like that? Do you like to be challenged in that way? Because i got to say, I don't think of Tom Cruise, the couch jumping, (laughs) Brooke shield bashing health nut as being a druggie. Or at least not any drug that would be on the street. And so what a surprise to see him playing a good guy with a real dark streak
0: in it. Well, I say interesting because they went to the drugs. and. This movie haunts me to this day because of this entire subplot about the child being kidnapped from him at the public pool. I didn't have kids back when I first saw this movie, and now I do. Back then, it was just... There's nothing you could have possibly done in that situation. That's just one of those things that just happens, unfortunately happens. And I tell you, I'll never <laughs> dunk my head underneath the water in a public pool in my entire life <laughs> if I'm there with my kids. Because how is he supposed to... – come on. I, I mean, it was a bad judgment, sure. But the point is that it hap- It was bad luck, bad situation, horribleness, and that guy was torturing himself. But this character in this movie, this, this good guy cop and Tom Cruise – Taking drugs like that off the street, it's a really hard, hard image. And it's very interesting they went that far with it. You could have this guy lamenting his losses. You could have this guy being haunted by this. You could have him drink alcohol. But they went to what I'm assuming is just like crack.
3: Yeah, it is the new version of crack. Yeah, it's a pipe.
0: And I don't know if I'm 100% on board with them going that far.
3: I think they had to do that because what they're introducing here is not only is Tom Cruise haunted by the kidnapping and probable murder of his son, but you are introduced to the drug itself, Neuroin, which ends up being a pivotal backstory component to why we even have clairvoyance precogs. We find out that this drug was a street drug that many people got hooked on. And if you had like a crack baby, if you had a Neurowind baby, it was pretty screwed up. And when Cruz finally goes on the run and goes to the house of the scientist who engineered the precogs, she basically explains that she had been trying to give medical therapy to help the Neurowind babies. And what it ended up doing was creating Agatha, Arthur, and Dash The precogs.
0: Right. So to have the cop who is using the output, right, of that unfortunate situation with the birth defects during the day to, quote unquote, better the society, to be using the drug recreationally at night is quite interesting. Do you think they needed to do that? Is that the the best way to introduce that idea? Because that connection, although it's set in that greenhouse with the inventor of the precogs. I'm just wondering, did they have to go that far with Tom Cruise's character? I'm not saying it, it kills the movie for me, I'm not saying that at all, but it certainly is disturbing and I'm wondering, you're saying they had to introduce it this way to introduce the drugs so we understand about the precogs? Because you could just told the story about the mothers having the drug problems, having the precogs as kids as a result, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. He didn't have to have the connection with the drugs.
3: All I will say is this, The mayor of Washington, D.C., Marion Barry, was caught on videotape with a prostitute smoking crack and he got reelected. So I don't think D.C. has any problem with their superiors uh, using drugs and doing their jobs to govern.
2: I like that they they went really, well, not really dark, but they went pretty dark with Tom Cruise's character here. And that's not something I often associate with Spielberg, I, I think, with his later films. He started getting darker, moved away from the whole E.T., Indiana Jones kind of thing, moving away from the black versus white, getting into more gray space. So I like that you have this torture character. To me, you could see how tortured he is over the loss of his son, that he's turned to drugs to deal with it which really sets up a good tension because you know he has a lot invested in pre-crime. He cares about it because what personally happened to him and what personally happened to him has totally screwed him up. So I I think it creates a nice tension. Does he want to overthrow? Does he want to subvert pre-crime? No, he really wants to hold it up. And look how screwed up he is because of this crime that happened to him personally. So I, I think it sets up a nice tension throughout the movie by pushing it so far with how distraught he is over the loss of his son and showing the drug use. Yeah,
0: and it also gives credence to this man who is Mr. you know Mr. Awesome Cop. When he has to go on the run to save himself, he's willing to break some laws and do some things that you wouldn't expect a clean-cut cop guy to do. So it does give a little bit of an idea that this guy will go do what he has to do for himself to survive.
3: I want to just say one other thing. This isn't the first time Cruise has gone dark either. I feel like Spielberg and Cruise... Both wanted to do something that challenged their image. Cruz had been going dark ever since interview with a vampire, really. He had kept trying to make these parts like Eyes Wide Shut or Magnolia or Vanilla Sky, where he really is getting kind of weird. He's trying to prove to people that he's more than a bunch of teeth and an ace fighter pilot, which, you know, he's been fighting for quite some time. And you know what? I don't know that I can ever not think of him in that way, but I appreciate the effort here. I don't think he's totally right for this role. In the story by Philip K. Dick, the guy's middle-aged, fat, balding, washed up, thinking he's going to be replaced by what's essentially Colin Farrell's character. And here, he's still got biceps. He's still, you know, like doing the heroic thing. He's got a sense of humor about him. But it's darker, and I appreciate that. Did they need to go this far? Yes, because I really didn't want another vanilla bland cruise role
0: i do agree with you i think that the darkness of this movie and the darkness of this drug that it brings to it uh, certainly it, it gives it uh, an extra punch
3: and i spielberg is aware of that he doesn't let it get too dark i want to say even though we're talking about the the icky elements of the story and stuff that really are, are, are unnerving once the chase gets going once we're actually running some of this is pure indiana jones frivolity i gotta say when they're doing that scene with the cars running up and down and he ends up jumping car to car and lands upside down in a yoga studio or when he's grabbing onto his uh, jetpack comrades and blowing through an apartment building and you know a kid's playing saxophone and it blows through his wall all that stuff feels straight out of old spielberg 1981 raiders of the lost ark
2: Oh, it totally does. I mean, there's a great scene where in there, Colin Farrell's chasing Tom Cruise in the, the car factory, this car manufacturing factory. And I actually even wrote futuristic Indiana Jones. You got Tom Cruise. <laughs> he's got that weird like gun that you spin around to crank up and it shoots out pulse rays. And he, he's hiding in this car as it's assembled. And they they're not sure if he made it through the assembly process. And he pokes his head off and shoots off, drives away. I mean. There's a lot of fun in this movie, too. It's, it's not all dark. There, there's definitely those classic Spielberg elements.
0: I completely agree with you. The spider droids, later on, when they're trying to search for him in that building, and they all scan the eyes. It's creepy, but at the same time, a very Spielbergian kind of thing. It's amazing how it goes back and forth, flip-flops between the high-action, bubblegum, Steven Spielberg kind of adventure kind of stuff, and that really dark creepiness that the movie keeps going back to.
3: Spielberg knows when to let off on the gas. He knows when he's pushing us too far and he knows how to bring us back in again. And Cruise, too. I mean, he's not going to let his image tarnish to the point that we reject him. They couldn't make the movie the way Ridley Scott made Blade Runner with Harrison Ford. They just aren't capable of letting it go that myopic and that dark and morally ambiguous. You're still with Cruise Through all of this, you still want him to find that minority report and prove his innocence. You're still convinced he is innocent.
0: You mentioned the vertical cars that go up on the side of the buildings, and it's all these amazing kinds of roads that look like out of a Dr. Seuss book, all these kinds of weird-looking roads, and these cars that look like Tron cars. But, you know, I found— it sometimes, like in that chase sequence with the cars, which the first time I saw this movie, I loved that scene when he was jumping on the outside of the cars on the side of the building. What a thrilling scene that was the first time. The second time, this time I saw it, I didn't need as many special effects for this story i enjoyed the special effects the the amazing display we talked about with the power glove the the little spider droids i mentioned there are lots of fun elements but i enjoyed the scenes more when it was the the plot scenes and and the the chase scenes it's fun with the rocket packs absolutely but Sometimes I felt the special effects were getting a little bit in the way. It was a little distracting, I should say. I liked it. I liked the visuals, but there's so much good here in the story. Do you don't understand what I'm saying? It's not a big special effects action pieces as the movie goes on. And I was, I was happy that they got away from that towards the end.
3: Well, there's a mystery, and normally in mysteries, there's not big extended action scenes. Of course, there's, those are action movies. So they're trying to balance a lot of things here. I tell you what, I didn't mind that so much. I did feel like. Spielberg like to go gross in a way here. I thought that was a little distracting at at a certain point we might as well get into the scene you're talking about. The only way he can go back to DC after he's fled to the countryside is to change out his eyes. I, there's retinal identification everywhere you go. They play with ads really brilliantly here even though there's product placement. Up the wazoo. We love watching it because it's Social commentary as well all the ads can look in you in the eye know who you are and pitch directly to you and I got to tell you they're going to figure this out so I can see this future very clearly it feels right on the nose so the only way for him to go through DC and not get fingered instantly would be to trade out his eyes you want to talk about icky Whoa! That whole concept still just makes me shiver. Yuck, man. Can you imagine going to a point where you realize the only way to go forward is to have someone suck out your eyeballs and put in new ones?
2: Okay, this is where I start having problems, some problems with Spielberg. And I think it's just with him in general. We've talked about how clever he is. He knows how to make a good movie. He knows how to make a movie that's going to grab the audience. And I felt this scene with the doctor replacing the eyes. I feel he really cheats here to try to get a reaction out of the crowd. You know, you have this doctor come out. He's real slimy looking. He's coughing, got snot dripping off of him. Yeah. Don't worry about an infection. You know, you don't have to worry about that. And then there's this whole reveal that this doctor was actually put into jail by Tom Cruise's character. And he kind of like, there's this foreboding, I'm going to get back at you now for throwing me in jail.
3: And but then it all goes, goes now nowhere. Goes, I agree. I, I agree. I, I didn't and like I that either.
2: That, Spielberg's totally building up the tension because he knows, oh, that's going to suck you in, get you at the edge of your seat. But then it just gets dropped. It, and that happens a few times in this movie where it really bugs me. I think Spielberg just, he thinks he's a little too clever. And, and he doesn't respect the audience at certain points in this film.
3: I agree with you on that one, Jacob. If there's one moment I could change in the whole movie, the one note that feels the most false It's this scene. Why bring up something that's never going to play out? And really, we're trying to get to other things. There's enough going on here. You don't need to throw in another subplot, particularly a red herring subplot. Let's just get on with it. I mean, you could have ended it with never even seeing the doctor and having him do that whole Clockwork orange, I think. I don't know why they had to make it some kind of weird German Mingala mad scientist parody. It seemed a little over the top.
0: And again, with the whole thing of you screwed me over, and now he had an opportunity just to get it back at him, and he actually gives him a good operation. He actually leaves him a sandwich, and that was pretty gross as well later on. And it doesn't pay off at all. I completely agree. And then the whole thing in the building do you think they could have cut that entire scene or cut it down a little bit?
3: I wouldn't want to miss those spiders. I mean, that was my point.
2: The spiders was pretty damn cool. This reminded me a lot from a scene in Imposter, where the the cops are looking for Anderton. They have these scanners. They can tell how many bodies by their, you know, they give off their body heat, and they can tell how many bodies are in this building. And again, a very similar scene in Impostor, not quite as well done as this one. (laughs) About (laughs) 20 million million special
3: effects, I think. But not only is it better visualized, but it's just more exciting, too.
2: Yeah, and so what the cops do is they have these little spider robot things. They throw them out, little discs. They crawl around. They find these bodies. And they climb up them. I, I love this scene when these spiders are going throughout this building. I mean, you, you have these couples fighting, and, and right in the middle of their fight, these spiders crawl up, and these robotic spiders crawl up them, scan their eyes. There's a, a couple making love in the middle of making love. These spiders walk in. <laughs> Guys sitting on the toilet. It, it, it actually this scene, and I love the way it was filmed because it, it's kind of this overhead shot. That goes through the ceiling of this apartment complex. It reminded me of like Citizen Kane on crack. I mean, that's one of the shot Orson Welles created in Citizen Kane, this overhead shot that goes through walls and everything. So technically it's a great scene, but you, you have, you know, this dilemma where Tom Cruise, he's got to hide from these spiders. He, he's just had his eyes replaced and there's a certain amount of time he has to go before he can take those bandages off or he'll go b- blind permanently. And, again, here's one of my problems. You know, at first he hides in this tub filled with ice to get his body heat down so he disappears. And, of course, the the spiders end up fighting him. They crawl up him. They lift the bandage up. They scan his eye. And then he doesn't go blind. Right. Well,
3: you know, I, I still – I'm with this scene. I'm going to defend this scene. You know how doctors recommend you don't jump into a pool until an hour after you – you eat because you'll <laughs> cramp and you'll drown. Like, we all jumped in after 35 minutes, right? I mean, sometimes the prescribed amount of time for healing is not obeyed and everything does turn out okay. He was really close to having his eyes At the point where he knew he wasn't going to go blind. I can go with the fact that when they finally peel back the bandages and there's still five minutes left or whatever, it doesn't do permanent damage.
0: Actually, I thought it was like six hours left. But my theory is, and this is the only reason I think the doctor thing is there, is that the doctor called the cops and told him he was there. And so he said, you got to wait 12 hours. And that way he had plenty of time to escape. So he wouldn't get busted for operating an illegal operation and the cops would come and arrest this guy who got him. Now I'm spinning this and giving the movie a lot of uh, slack here by even putting this together because the movie does not tell us that.
3: I like that, Brock. I never thought about that. And you're right. The cops just sort of show up. With, show up out I of have, the blue. I have no idea w- how they know that he could be in this complex. They really act like they're doing this to every complex there is. They're just going from neighborhood to neighborhood and unleashing the spiders and having them ID everyone in the building. And maybe that is what they're doing. But I kind of like what you're saying. Maybe there is a payoff to having this evil doctor that was betrayed and sent to jail so long ago. And,
0: yeah, all you needed was a, like a, him tipping off or like picking up a phone and we would have got that point. But, oh, Jacob, you said before, and they're all scanning in people's eyes. My favorite part of that whole scene was the couple fighting. They're fighting, fighting, fighting. The spiders crawl up them. They pause, get scanned. The spiders go away and they continue the fighting as if nothing happened. Loved it. Loved it. It was like such a perfect thing because in this future, that sort of thing might happen all the time and they can't be bothered by being distracted by it happening again. Brilliant. Mm-hmm. And that's
2: what they get for living in public housing.
3: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm sure that it's actually played playing out to a very real very current day attitude inner city washington has towards police force where they can just barge in and take names and you know the drill and if you do what they say they'll probably leave you alone after they get what they want and it does create this sort of idea of a not so great police state this is where one of the moments where we feel like pre-crimes attitudes maybe do go too far maybe they do violate civil liberties we don't want them to
2: yeah, this is a weird film because there's times where it feels like a definite dystopia with this, these police just walking in and scanning people, whoever they feel like. And at other times it feels like it's this great utopia. You know, they got rid of murder. You have these great shopping malls that know exactly what to sell you. It's a very weird dichotomy going on with this film, and I, I think it plays into the theme. You know, what kind of world do you want? You could have one without murder, but there's a definite trade-off there. You might not know if the person's guilty. There's a rise in the police state. So I like that it plays with these these two opposite ends and show that there's a trade-off. If you want one thing, you know, you want peace, you're going to have to give up rights. You want more rights, well, there's going to be more murder going on.
3: Yeah, yeah it's it's cool. Yeah, I it, like that. I like those kinds of debates. I like when we can find those kinds of smart debates and find paradoxes and gray areas in action movies, which usually trade so much in black hat, white hat, you know, good versus evil stereotypes. This movie is very gray. There's not one character that's pure, or really one character that's all evil.
0: Also, there's themes of slavery in this movie as well. The three precogs in that pool to make this whole thing work. These three people are denied real lives because they have this superpower to be able to eliminate crime. So so it's very interesting they bring that up. I was half expecting to see a protesters for the precogs. You know, where's the sympathy for these three Well, nobody
3: really sees them. Nobody really knows what it's like. There's a scene that happens right after the spider scene in which Tom Cruise is walking around in a field trip, is looking at statues dedicated to the precogs. That's all the public really knows about, that there's these magical three people that dictate who is guilty, and there is therefore no crime. I can believe that that's what the commoners believe. They have no idea that it really means being drugged up and... Dunked in a tank all of your life with no idea of what the present is like, always foreseeing horrible futures and reliving again and again murders and murders. And we don't really understand that consequences ourselves until Cruz goes back and steals Agatha and we kind of get a sense of who she is when she's not drugged up.
2: And there's a great line after he kidnaps Agatha. They're driving in the car and she asks, Is it now? I, I mm-hmm, thought that was yeah. just a, such a chilling line when she asked that because that's when you realize as the viewer that these precogs, they really have not had their life. They're living continuously in the future, just seeing all these horrible things and for this person to all of a sudden be pulled out of that environment. it's just It's just a great line, a very short, direct line that just sends a chill up my spine when I hear it.
0: I completely agree with you. It was just I smiled from ear to ear. During that exchange, it was just brilliant and very well played by Samantha Morton. I have
3: to. I want to totally give props to Samantha Morton. There is something about this chick's face. Mm. I tell you what. And Spielberg will just hover there sometimes. Her scream, her anguish is so clearly read on her face. She doesn't have many lines in this movie. She doesn't really do a whole lot. But all of the debate and what we're talking about is in her face. When she's screaming, when she's reliving these murders, when she is helping him guide Tim to his destiny where he meets Leo Crow, all of that, she's incredible in this movie. And I just want to say, without her in that role, without seeing that face, I don't think this movie will work half as well.
2: Yeah, And, and there's a great scene with her, which I think was really tricky to pull off, and she sold it. There's a scene, uh, Tom Cruise takes her back to his estranged wife's home, and she's kind of talking about the future of their son if he didn't go missing.
3: Mm-hmm. And An alternate reality, yeah. Yeah,
2: this alternate reality where he lived and he goes to high school, and then he goes to college, he makes love to a girl. And it would have been so easy for that whole scene to just, just come off really cheesy and bad, but her delivery during that scene, the I, I don't know, the way she talks and, and kind of pauses, just everything she does just really sells that scene, which could, for me, could have just been a disastrous scene if it wasn't done right.
0: And I love the slow reveal of the two parents, Tom Cruise and whoever played his wife, when they realize what's going on. And it's just, oh, it plays so beautifully. She is 100% the reason why that scene works. And you're absolutely right. I bet you, though, if that scene didn't play well, they, they would have to cut it. Because otherwise, it, it could have really tanked the movie. Because if you didn't believe her in that situation right there.
3: She's really the person that gets them back together. This, oh, the, yeah. Not only did the child go missing, but the divorce, you know, quickly followed. She hasn't really been seeing Anderton in all of this time, she's been living out in the countryside, trying to find some kind of peace and and reconcile the fact that their son is never coming back. And this is the woman that allows them to think about a life together again and, and to have a child again. It's an incredible scene. And Samantha Morton is the star, in my opinion, of this whole movie. I have my questions about whether there couldn't have been somebody than Tom Cruise in the role. I kind of would have liked to have seen Russell Crowe, someone with a little more gruff, someone a little bit older, someone not afraid to go fat. Um, but <laughs> Samantha Morton is perfect, and I, I loved every moment she's on camera.
0: The fun scene in this movie is after the whole thing goes down with the would-be murderer, they escape through the shopping mall.
2: Oh, such a great scene. And,
0: and so it starts off with them going in the shopping mall, and the cops are after them. So she being a precog, can tell what's going to happen. She tells him first, grab an umbrella. And so he grabs the umbrella. And you don't understand why he grabs the umbrella. It doesn't make any sense. He's grabbing the umbrella. And then she says, stand still. Stand still. Don't move. Why? Why? And she constantly just stands still. And why? Because at the right moment when the cops would see them, balloons block them. Brilliant. Then, as they, and Then it's a throwaway joke as they're walking away from that. She stops a woman and says, don't go home. He knows. <laughs> I mean, what a funny moment to have throw in there for no other reason but a gag. And then, as they escape the mall, it starts to rain. And, so and he has the umbrella. He has the umbrella. And I'm like, what a payoff. Brilliantly executed, wonderfully directed, fantastically written. And it just shows you how clever this movie is because it has this amazing concept of what this, this amazing concept of precogs and how to stop murder. But you know what? These precogs can come in handy in other situations, too.
3: <laughs> they sure can, and that would that would get annoying if half the chase if he had had her the whole time and she was doing all of it and he was doing none of the work. We might be like, this guy's kind of lazy. He's letting this <laughs> precock do it all. But for this moment, because it's so short, because it comes right at the moment that we need it to. Yeah, I love it. It it is great, and it leads us to this amazing moment of, you are now facing your destiny. It leads him right to the scene in the hotel lobby. He sees a billboard that he knows is present when he's in the room about to kill this man he's never heard of. And even though she's telling him, don't go, he's got to go. And you know what this moment reminded me of? I don't know if you guys ever saw this movie. It's a great movie about precognition in a way called memento oh, yeah. and it's really oh, yeah. got that whole idea of we've been here before and something is playing out it's just a, such a dick moment i got to say it's a philip k dick moment to the t the whole idea of heading towards a destiny that you don't understand in the present but a future self has told you must be this scene was just electric and really one of the hearts of the movie it happens when he finally corners leo crow and is given the choice to kill him or not. It's also the moment where Spielberg finally drops all the cynicism and says, you know what, I believe in free will, and I believe that one man can change history.
2: You know what, Stuart? Spielberg dropped the cynicism, and this is where I have some. Here's where I have a big problem with this film, is the whole precognition of Leo Crow. Because as we find out, Leo Crow was hired by Lamar Burgess as a way to set Anderton up. To to murder Leo and to kind of put him away because Anderton's discovering this secret. Uh, uh Burgess is going around killing people, knocking them off to make sure Pre-Crime is successful. And, right. and here's my problem: that whole vision. You know, when we when we see the initial uh, precognition and Tom Cruise discovers it, uh, Agatha's present. He, it's a paradox. If he would have never seen that vision, he would have never gone. He would never set out on this path. That would that would have led to him meeting Leo Crow. But obviously, we know that Lamar hired Leo Crow to do this. But we never see that Lamar had a plan for Anderton to find Leo, if that makes any sense. Well, I I mean, I I see a big hole here in the plot. I I
3: don't think it's a hole in the plot. I think it's. Things that we're to assume happen that we aren't shown. And let me just back up to say, just uh, just for our listeners to catch them up to speed, very early into the movie, I think only about 10 minutes in, uh, Anderton's hanging out by the tank. No one else is around. And Agatha pops out and says, can you see? She's haunted by the vision of the death of her mother. And nobody understands... A, that it's his mother or what? who the real killer was. John Doe went down for the crime. And really, it's Anderton's mentor that's really responsible for it. And we'll talk about how he pulled that off at the end when we really get into that part of the movie. But that's the scene in which Tom Cruise begins to think something is up with this old murder. He begins to investigate what happens to... This woman and and even though they caught the criminal and she wasn't killed she's gone missing and they don't know who this killer really is he goes the reason why this murder is set up is he goes to his boss he goes to Burgess to hash this out he's like what do you think about this there's a scene in their study. Where he talks about that. Well, and... he,
0: he goes to him and says, Agatha's stream is missing. Two streams are there. Agatha's is missing. And he discuss- and he asks the boss, hey, why is this missing? And that tips off his boss that right. Tom Cruise is investigating this. And that's what we find out about the minority reports because he keeps investigating it after he's accused of the murder on the ball, etc. But that tips Lamar off. And, of
3: course, Burgess cannot kill Tom Cruise. He can't kill him because the precogs will spit out a ball and that will be – I found out. So he has to set up a situation in which he knows Tom Cruise is going to go down for murder. And there's only one thing that can make Tom Cruise murder.
0: Jacob, I agree with you. I thought that was a plot hole. How could he possibly have seen this murder take place in the precog thing without knowledge of that happening? It couldn't have happened. So uh, you're saying, Stuart, that with that conversation, Lamar realizes he has to set Tom Cruise up, so he puts the entire plan in motion. For, he hire, Yes, but, he hires
3: a suicidal man to pretend to be the one man that Anderton could not resist pulling the trigger on. And he sets that up by just by the act of hiring him and putting him there. That's enough for the precogs to know that it's going to happen and foretell of a destiny that Anderton plays right into.
0: But the catalyst... For him, even showing up there is because he sees the murder on the screen from the Precox. So the the trigger for him to go on this whole journey that leads him to that point is a paradox, and that's the problem with it.
3: No, it's not a paradox because what sets it in motion is not the Anderton's vision of him killing someone; it's the vision of Burgess killing Agatha's mother. That's what well, sets it up.
2: No, in here, yes. in this, as I, as I as I was thinking about this, this is what I started thinking that. Agatha, you you find out early on, you talk about the scene where she says, do you see, she jumps out and grabs Anderton, do you see, it shows this the vision of the death of her uh, mother, and I almost think that Agatha is using her psychic abilities to create a vision for Tom Cruise to set him on this path, so this murder is solved, so she That's and correct. the other precogs, is, is that... And I didn't think of that the first time I saw this. And she said, here's this big paradox. And this is the only way I could justify that paradox. If that's actually the case, that Agatha has actually put all of this in motion. Because she knows she's psychic, so she knows Leo Crow was hired to do something. But she's able to twist the vision, so it sets Tom Cruise on this mission. I mean, is that what you're getting at, Stuart?
3: Pretty much you're actually illuminating it more than I understood myself. But yes, as far as I can understand... Agatha and the twins want to be free of their prison, and Agatha is tortured by the fact that a real murder occurred and no one knows about it. A real murderer of her own mother. And so let's just go ahead and get into the cover up and how this was done. Agatha's mother, Anne, was a druggie, as we've already established. She was hooked on the neuroin and gave up her baby. And the baby was treated and developed cognitive abilities. And the whole idea of pre-crime was formed by Burgess. And just as they were about to get started, they were already had the unit out there and going and doing it. Here comes Anne, cleaned up and ready to take custody again, wanting her daughter back and probably not too happy to learn that she's bald and naked and stuck in a tank all day. So Burgess thinks it's worth one murder to end all other murders in D.C. How he does it? He hires somebody to kill Anne. But, of course, the SWAT team is going to stop them. They see those visions and they stop them. And so that vision, that never occurs. And even though Agatha keeps seeing that vision, they dismiss that as an echo. They talk about the idea that not only do they experience a future murder, They'll live it again and again like an echo, even after the potential murderer has been nabbed. So the brilliance of what Burgess does is he sets up a murder scene that gets thwarted and then does it exactly as it's been preconceived so that they'll think it's an echo when it, it is an entirely different murder with him as the perpetrator and, and as the victim. It's kind of ingenious, although I'm still not sure why that when Mean another ball with his name popping out on it.
0: Well, sure. Well, because they couldn't see his face, I guess. Well, yeah, yeah. I think everyone just dismissed it. Maybe the ball did pop out, and they realized, oh wait. Yeah, he's the head of
3: the thing. He could have been there and grabbed the ball when yeah. no one was looking. But I that, mean, uh, yeah,
0: I'm right. willing
3: to give him that one. But it's a very intricate thing, and and it comes way at the end. It's it's a little confusing. But the more I think about it, the more I like the idea. That, yes, not only is she trying to bring him to justice, but by in doing so, she knows it will end pre-crime and free her and the twins.
0: Right.
2: Okay. And I thought that was a great little twist for this murder to be achieved by repeating the murder the exact same way. If, if this was a lesser film, that would have been the whole the whole film. Let's solve this murder, and, and that's the, the the whole hook. And that's just a little piece of this film. I think that's why this film is so great. There's so much to it. They took something that could have been the whole plot, and yeah, we'll throw that in there. It's a great hook. Hey, we'll commit murder by just repeating whatever these visions are.
0: Yeah, yeah. yeah. and then Colin Farrell figures it out with a little old-fashioned – Detective work. He becomes the detective that Tom Cruise was earlier in the movie by piecing together that the orgy of evidence that Tom Cruise killed this man because he killed his son. He figured out that couldn't possibly be it. He figured out that the film, the whole thing was a, was a ruse. Of course, he didn't figure out that he shouldn't give his boss who he, he thinks
3: he knows, right? Isn't he accusing Burgess when he calls him into the room? They they're in Anderson's apartment, right? And he's called Burgess there, and Colin Farrell basically lays it all out with the idea that someone inside, with all of the access, is responsible. He knows, right? Isn't he accusing this guy of this?
0: I don't know. I don't know if he's accusing Lamar of it. I think he's saying it's somebody in the organization. That has access to this and that.
3: Could he have been that dumb? He put everything else together but he didn't realize it was Max Monsito? Max is the villain in every movie. I mean the the merciless and Flash Gordon. I mean he's always the bad guy. (laughs) Come on, just watch Flash Gordon, Colin, you idiot.
0: Well, I, that's I, why you're dead. Right. It's just that if he did know it was him, he wouldn't have given him an, a loaded gun. He would have <laughs> given him the gun, but he wouldn't give him a loaded gun. I think possibly whilst he was explaining it to him, he realized it was him. And sure enough, when the gun was pointed at him, he, he realized it was him. And when Colin Farrell dies, his eyes bulge out. I got that to be, that's the one piece I didn't figure out. I didn't want to believe that. That kind of thing. His reaction of when he was shot was like, crap, I didn't figure that part out.
3: Uh, Well, that's going to cost you something. Oh, it costs you something big. (laughs) uh, You know, one thing I do like about this also is they bring up the whole idea of of guns and the fact that the gun is obsolete. You learn in this scene, this was a gun that Burgess gave Anderton back in the days when they worked homicide in Baltimore before pre-crime. And so that's why he has a gun, because in this day and age, they can't have guns, because if you have a gun, you potentially could kill someone And that is not allowed. So I thought that was really clever, the fact that uh, guns have been abolished and that the only pistols anyone carries are these, like, cool sonic boom guns that, like, I don't know what they do exactly, but they kind of just, like, suck in air and then, like, shoot it out as a really loud blast. Kind of like a… T-shirt gun. Yeah, I don't know. It was was really cool. I thought that was an interesting take on weapons in a post-murder era.
0: I agree with you, and and the beauty of this murder of Colin Farrell, too, by Max von Sydow is the precogs aren't working that day.
3: Yeah, (laughs) yeah. Samantha Morton is at the Gap getting new pants.
0: Exactly. So, like, it was brilliant that he murdered him there because there was no precogs there to do it. The guy took full advantage. Great. This a very smart movie. Very smart script.
3: And then, a bit, let's just, we'll get to the end of it. The movie seems to change tone and, and pace as we enter the third part. Anderton is eventually nabbed and haloed, and we finally see what that is. It's a literal, angelic-looking halo that goes around his head. He's shaved bald and stuck in a big plastic tube where he is told he will be experiencing visions of harmony and light, sort of like a electrically created heaven if you will and that that's where they're going to keep him for all to come there has been some theories i was reading on the net and it never occurred me the two times i watched the movie that say the rest of the movie is his delusion much like in total recall when arnold is presented with the choice of take the pill or not the pill and decides not to and all all hell breaks loose and it goes bug nuts there that this (laughs) good the, the ending of this movie and all of its sort of Forced upon happy endingness is really just delusion.
0: I read the same thing, and it didn't occur to me watching this movie. But we during Total Recall, the two of you pick that up while watching the movie. But this one, I didn't. I just figured that
2: they had a happy ending because you know it's Spielberg. It Spielberg I don't think movie. he yeah.
3: makes downbeat <laughs> endings. I think it's against I, DNA. I,
2: I just don't think there's enough evidence to come to that conclusion. Mm-hmm, it, yeah, it's, I mean, that that's my thing In total recall, there's evidence You can make yeah. a case for it being a dream Is there an orgy Here, of evidence there, Jacob? There's <laughs> not an orgy of evidence So maybe it, <laughs> that means it is true um, But yeah, I, I just didn't think there was enough evidence to, to make you think That this was a dream From once Tom Cruise is caught To the end of the movie I think that that's a stretch it, It's a nice theory It's
0: a great theory I just don't think the pieces line up for it to be 100% for me Do you think it works?
3: The thing about Total Recall is someone lays out everything that's going to happen and says, this is your delusion and this is how it's going to play out. Here, there's no reason to think Tom Cruise wouldn't have entirely different visions of him running around with his son. I mean, if he's going to have a fantasy, why wouldn't it be reuniting with his son? Which he never is, by the way. That's one of the red herrings of the movie is he never does find out who took his son or whatever happened to him. And I like that. I like that that character has to deal with ambiguity. That bow is never tied.
2: I I got a question for you guys regarding the ending, because you find out that Tom Cruise is freed by his estranged wife breaking into the detention facility because she has his original eyeball from that he had pulled out during the surgery, and she's able to scan it in, get access. We see Tom Cruise doing the same thing. He uses his old eyes to get access. Why does someone that's a fugitive have access (laughs) to the temple, to the precogs, to a detention facility? Have they not updated their system to to take him out of the system, to not allow him access? I mean, that's one plot hole here that really bugs me.
3: And yet, it's so true to life that even in a world where everything's predetermined and the Gap knows who you are and says, Hello, Mr. Yakamura, I'm going to sell you the pants that you always buy, there would still be some flub like this. It makes me kind of laugh that even in this utopia... Not everything is perfect, but I got to say, I can buy it once, but even after the man's been caught and in jail, it, it's still going to work? I mean, really? You yeah, know.
0: not only that. Yeah, it basically, he's already incarcerated the whole thing. He already used that same technique, but they still let it be there so she can use it at the end. I think it's supposed to be, a, we, the audience, sees a, a satisfying, oh, kind of thing, but people like ourselves who put together the dots a little more were like wait a second, it's a gimme. We're going to have to either give it to them or not. You have to choose if you want to. Uh, but it gets Tom Cruise out of jail for the mega happy
3: ending. Uh, you know, and i got to say the other problem I have with this is I don't really have much feeling about this woman, Laura. I mean, I, no fault to the actress, I suppose. It's just kind of bland role, and she's all of a sudden asked to be a Cracker Jack investigator like everyone else right at the end here. It feels phony. It really feels... Like, if this was your estranged ex-husband who was on doping and you didn't want to be with him because he messed up and lost your child and all this, would you really go to these extremes to free him? Would you really think that he wasn't guilty? I mean, I found that whole idea slightly implausible, and it's only because of that great scene we already talked about with Samantha Morton talking about the future they could have had or maybe did have in an alternate reality. And will
0: have because she starts to mention another child in that scene.
3: But I guess I just don't like the fact that all of a sudden we have a new investigative reporter. After Colin Farrell's been shot and killed and Tom Cruise in jail, now we have nothing better than the boring country wife to put it all together with his missing eyeball. It's just a little lazy, and, and some of this ending does feel really false and a little bit too Spielberg-happy.
0: In, in, this, in this movie of all this clever writing, for her to figure out that Lamar is the bad guy because he mentions an extra detail – about the yeah. murder. We've seen that many times before. I, I guess I've seen it so many times that I picked up immediately that he said the drowning when she never mentioned drowning. I've seen it too many times before, but of a whole movie that's full of clever writing and things connecting, how she figures the whole thing out and how that whole scene plays out, it kind of felt kind of bleh. I completely You know agree. what?
2: Maybe this was a delusion
1: <laughs> <In Tom laughs>
0: mind, the more I think about it.
3: Yeah, uh, well, would we be unhappy if it had ended with that? Would have been happy to know that Max von Sydow got away with it, that pre-crime is implemented, that murder has ended, but it cost us Tom Cruise? Uh, Yeah, I can live with that. I can live with it. Yeah, (laughs) yeah.
2: if it was done smartly, I I think that would have been a great ending. Again, this is Spielberg. I I saw what he did to Kubrick's AI. Not pretty. You you could tell the Spielberg parts and you could tell the, the Kubrick parts of that film. But I read that there was original prints of this film that at the very end were showing the precogs. They've retired into the country, and it ends with the line, and murder has returned, and that that was pulled from the – Oh, they got –
3: they needed to have that. That,
2: Yeah, it would have –
3: There are consequences to those precogs being free, and even though that might be the right decision, even though it might have been wrong to enslave three people for the good of all of Washington, D.C., We still need to understand the consequence, and that is damn right wrong that he pulled punches and didn't admit the fact that this was going to cost
0: lives. This whole movie makes you think. I mean, this whole podcast talking about beyond the great special effects and things, we're talking about some serious issues here. And and I think that would have really put a nail in that coffin of, yeah, we're entertaining you here, people, but this is real. This is like a real something to think about, about what society needs to do and what the cost of that is. And it's very – it would have been a really nice statement if they put it on the end of this movie. Combating the whole it's his dream while he's in the tube of suspended animation, if it was – I don't think he would have dreamed that he and his wife have a second child on the way. They would have dreamed that their son returned to them.
3: I totally agree with you.
0: So i that's why I don't think it works.
3: Jacob, you mentioned Stanley Kubrick, and i got to get this in here. Because even though AI was supposed to be the ultimate partnership between cynical Stanley Kubrick and feel-good Spielberg, I really feel like this is the movie where Spielberg took on Kubrick. This is like the Spielberg version of A Clockwork Orange. And I don't know if you guys have seen that movie. Oh, yeah. It's many a times, classic. Many, you many got to see it. It's They're all about the same thing. And that is, what do you do with a criminal? And is there such a thing as free will or is everything predetermined? You look at Clockwork Orange and Stanley looks you in the eye and says, there's nothing you can do. Everything is predetermined. There's no way to change a criminal's nature. Spielberg. He looks you in the eye and says, everyone can change, and nothing is predetermined. It's well, here, here's my
2: problem before. with that, because what they say is, if you know the future, you can change it. Yes. That, that's right. the key here. That's a problem. We don't all have a precog sitting in our swimming pool. <laughs> no, just, it's kind of a moot point to me that if you know the f- future, you can change it. It's not that... You can change the future. You're not predestined. It's that, well, if you know what you're going to do, then you have a choice to do something else. It's yeah, a really mixed message.
3: I think pre-crime had a little backwards. Rather than stopping these murderers and jailing them forever with a little halo on, couldn't they have just put them in detention until the time they were supposed to kill and then say, okay, you're free? If you ever try this again, you'll be right back here. I mean, they which, did have the which power. Is what they
2: do at the end of the film? Yes, yes, is they yes. release them all and just monitor them?
3: Yeah, that should have happened from the get. This should have been an obvious thing. But yes, I, we're getting to the more central debate, which is: is it okay for three people to be jailed in order to protect all of the murders? Is that a fair trade off? What do you think? Should a pre-crime been ended just because it caused three people enslavement and a couple people had to die?
0: Well, in the story, precogs, they're not like the three precogs here.
3: No, they're mentally retarded in, in a way that they're not able to even understand what they're seeing. Right. They don't know what they're saying. They're really just vessels from something, maybe God, that just sputter out of them. And here, they're very much aware and feeling. They're empathic. They're feeling those murders. I mean, that pain in Samantha Morton's face, again, she knows and relives murder and murder and murder all the time.
0: Right. So the reason I brought that up was it's really a different kind of character in the story, original story, than it is here. And so this debate here is certainly... Is brought up Well, of course the people in the story also it has to be acknowledged just because they're different doesn't mean they can be enslaved to do that but this story here uses three beings who for all intents and purposes are exactly like you and me except they can see the future you see so they look that way for a reason because it is The question that the movie is asking is the need of the many outweigh the need of the few, as they talked about in Star Trek. Are we supposed to be okay with this? And isn't this what we had the big debate about with slavery how many years ago here in this country?
3: Well, what if we paid them and gave them some vacation time?
2: <laughs> <laughs> uh, if you
0: get
3: to the go, murder rate come... would
2: suit up during that two-week vacation. Yeah, yeah,
3: just for two weeks. It's, we'll just call it murder vacation day. And then, like, uh, you know, they come back and there's no more murders.
0: You brought up earlier that if this thing goes national, how are these three guys going to – Oh, my God. There's handle. not enough
3: trees to make the wooden balls. <laughs> yeah, seriously. I mean, that's major deforestation happening right you're, there. You're gonna they are going to have to get
0: a couple of more drug-induced mothers yeah. to get these kids to pop out so they can do the whole thing. It would have been a whole huge conspiracy to manufacture precogs.
2: Yeah. And who knows how good or bad those precogs would be. That's a whole other movie.
0: That's a whole yeah.
2: other movie. I mean, Stuart, you brought up Clockwork Orange, which – I think pushes this debate even harder because it makes everyone so much worse. You know, uh, Alex in that film, yeah. raping, murdering, yeah. and, and it really forces you, okay, are you okay to have people like that running around, but also have your freedom? This film doesn't quite push it that far. It's not as in your face. It's much more subtle because it is Spielberg. Yep. And, and for me, I, you know, I'm a behavioralist. I, I judge people off of their behaviors. You could, think in your head, whatever you want. It's how you act to me. So for me, if if people aren't running around, if they're not actually committing the murder, that's great. We stopped it let 's give them six months in jail. I mean I think that's worse that's like a life sentence throwing them in this halo thing, putting in the uh, in this almost host state I mean it, again it's much more subtle than uh strapping your eyes open and forcing you to watch uh you, you know Nazis murdering people twenty four hours a day like in Clockwork Orange. But I don't know. I I don't think it's a good trade-off. I, yeah. I'd rather I'd rather play my odds on the murder uh, game. So, but you know, it's interesting you said that. We
0: got the impression they locked them in those those cages, those those suspended animation cages forever. We didn't get the impression they got locked up for a limited amount of time.
3: No, they definitely make it clear it's for the forever.
0: But wouldn't it have been interesting if they did release them after a certain amount of time? Because the thought of being put in those things could be enough for people to even rethink it at the last minute. When Ari Gross is taken away in the beginning of the movie. Don't do that to me. Don't put that halo on me. I didn't do anything yet. He knew where he was going. He knew what was going to happen. The fear of that place did not stop him from wanting to commit that murder. You see what I mean? So sure. So it, it, it may not have been enough. But the 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 central debate of this movie is, is it okay to have these three people enslaved so the rest of us can live in a murder-free society? And is it okay to imprison people for something they're thinking about doing or almost did before they got a chance to do it? Is it okay to give people jail time for something they intended to do but didn't actually do? My answer to that is no. If you can go to jail for something you were thinking.
3: But it's, not, it's more than a thought crime. It is a preconceived future. You have to believe that these psychics are never wrong. And the sad part about this movie is the minority report, the very title of the movie, ends up being kind of a red herring. We never actually deal with a case where the psychics disagree about what's going to happen. But we've definitely had ample evidence that what they could foresee for a future isn't always the case and that there is such thing as alternate realities. Right. And given that knowledge, yeah, let's get rid of this system. If they're not 100% infallible, it doesn't work. And right. certainly, I would rather have crime stopped, but I don't think that that means everyone gets jailed. I mean, the way I look at things is we're all capable of murder given the extremes of a circumstance. And so in that case, we're all guilty. We're all Have sin, I suppose, if we want to bring it back to the Christian definition of it. And so given that, as it may, I'd much rather see pre-crime stopping the circumstances that create murder than saying you're a bad person and slapping a halo on someone.
0: And that's, a, that's a good way to say it. I, I think you're right. I, I think that these people had the intent to do so, not just thinking about doing it. I can think about eating a sandwich all I want, but right before I put it in my mouth, I'm going to do it. I'm going to eat this sandwich. So, yeah, it's, it's a little bit different. It goes a step further. But still, they didn't actually do it yet. So it's very interesting kind of moral ambiguity there. It's kind of an ethical thing to talk about.
2: I, I mean, I think it's very relevant in our day. I mean, I, I don't want to turn this into uh, now politics. But I, I think this is a, a really relevant debate where you have certain factions, you know. The war are... on
3: terror. The whole war on yeah. terror is predicated on the idea that if we do rendition and jail everyone that has a certain last name, then that's going to protect everyone else from a nuclear bomb going off.
2: Well, and not even getting into the war on terror, just smaller things where you feel— Certain people feel certain political parties are trying to intrude. I know up in the East Bay in Northern California where they really are all crazy. Berkeley is trying to ban McDonald's or fast food from selling toys in a Happy Meal because then it makes the kid want to eat junk food. And they're saying kids shouldn't eat junk food. It's going to make them fat, which, yeah, I, I agree with that principle. We should all, you know, look like Tom Cruise, have a nice body. I would love if, love if I was in shape. But we got to learn to make our decisions at some point. So I think, you know, we talked about screamers and imposter, not really tapping into anything relevant. And I think this movie definitely taps in to stuff that was going on at the times. I mean, this was a post-9-11 movie and stuff that's still going on today.
3: Yeah, I totally agree. And that would be my final thought on the matter is there's so much here we probably haven't even chewed on. we chewed on a lot, and I think we're pretty much at the end here. But this movie is relevant, and it should be seen.
0: Yeah. Stuart, Jacob, do you recommend Minority Report? Stuart.
3: Yes, I love this film, and it feels great to be able to totally advocate a movie. I think they've done a tremendous job of taking the headiness that was Blade Runner and then with the fun and the thrills and the lowbrow humor of Total Recall and giving you the perfect pairing, the perfect mixture. It's going to appeal to both of those without being too much of one or the other. I think, even though it's very similar to movies that have come before, like Matrix and 12 Monkeys, I think it's better than all of them. I think this is a great movie. I think it's one of Spielberg's best. See the movie.
2: Jacob? Stuart must have a precog, because he just uh, stole my line. (laughs) (laughs) I I think this movie, there's some, you know, Brock, you say, give me. There's some plot holes that bug me. There's that whole paradox, which I, I came up for a fix for it. I don't know if I really believe in that fix, but... If you could push past that stuff, this movie's getting at something deeper. And I was going to say the same thing as Stewart. You know, we talked about Blade Runner being way on the side, way too artsy, really pushing that extreme. And then Total Recall going way the other way, which is fun entertainment. And this really does find a middle ground. I don't think it's a perfect film. But I definitely think it's a film worth watching. It's a film that's going to get you to talk to those you know you watched it with, debating real-life politics, real-life situations. And going back to Blade Runner, I think that's great art. It makes people converse and debate in real life. Yeah, of course, I definitely recommend this movie.
3: And I'm going to just pipe in here one more time. We almost had this as Total Recall too. The original idea of this, I mentioned when we covered Total Recall – The sequel was going to be Arnold Schwarzenegger with the precogs on Mars doing what Tom Cruise does in this movie. And I'm so glad that it fell to different hands and became this film.
0: And it fits right in with the other Philip K. Dick stories you read about. The hero of the movie finds out that he thought he was one thing and he might be something else. In this case, he wasn't a replicant. but This is yeah. a good version of imposter. Yeah, it's, yeah. Like, it's the same yeah. kind of the, idea. Identity,
3: the identity crisis they all have, this might be the best
0: one. As far as my recommendation, I absolutely recommend this film. It's one of the strongest recommends I can give because of everything we talked about in this podcast already we talked about how good the acting was how well it was directed how well it was put together how well it was written and then we talked about how well the themes work together we talked about how the movie doesn't always work and there's are th- in this room for debate there's so much here to talk about folks that we can't even possibly all get to it you know we didn't even talk about the music We didn't even talk about the music of this movie because we didn't have time to. And I didn't find it really fit very well. I thought it was kind of distracting sometimes, this John Williams score. (laughs) I really did. But who cares because there's so much here. I'd like to watch this movie a second time or third time actually and come back and talk to you about it some more because there's so much here. And that's what we want right? That's what we want from a good science fiction movie.
3: I guess that's why we got the forums where people can do that very thing.
0: I hope they do and they should do that. If there's a part of this movie that we didn't talk about you wish we did please go on the Now Playing forums you can find a link on the homepage at nowplayingpodcast.com and give us your two cents and we'll join the conversation with you especially if it's something that we wish we mentioned on here now. This movie has so much to offer and I think that yeah it's not a perfect movie there are some holes but you know what it is I think the strongest movie reviewed so far in this series and I think it's A lot of fun to watch, and it makes you think. And you know what? That's good movie making. So overall, absolutely, watch this movie, folks. You won't regret it. If you haven't seen it before, you're in for a good treat. So again, uh, if you enjoyed this podcast, please go to iTunes and leave a positive review for us so other people like yourself can find us and they can listen to this review and all the other reviews that we have in this series at nowplayingpodcast.com in our archive section. You'll also find other series we've done like Terminator, Star Trek, Friday the 13th Halloween a whole bunch of different kinds of movie series all there at com in the archive section we're on Facebook you can follow us there all of us actually post now and then about things we've actually seen that week little things here and there it's an ongoing conversation over at Facebook we're on Twitter you can follow us there too Join the fun. Come and enjoy the conversation at Now Playing. And also, I don't want to forget to mention this because it's important. Stuart is reviewing all of these stories that these movies in the Philip K. Dick retrospective series we're doing here at Now Playing. He's reviewing all the short stories and all the novellas that these movies are based on at booksandnachos.com, our sister podcast over there at Venganza Media. So please check it out. It's at booksandnachos.com, all one word. And here's Stuart's review of The Minority Report by Philip K. Dick. Stuart, Jacob, it's been a fantastic discussion and I really hope the next movie we talk about Paycheck will be just as lively a discussion uh,
3: John, a Woo- Woo- I- <laughs> John Woo John Wu, Uma Thurman Ben Affleck
2: I don't think I need a precog to know where this one's going.
3: <laughs> I'm hoping for fun. I don't expect it to hit the hides, and certainly not the intellectual capacity of what we just watched. But maybe it can be a fun B-movie. I'd be okay if i it's just as much fun as Total Recall.
0: I am wondering, since it's a John Woo movie and a Philip K. Dick story, I'm wondering if the doves will turn out to be replicants. <laughs> <laughs> Until next time, folks, we'll talk to you soon.
1: Thank you for listening to this episode of Now Playing's Philip K. Dick Retrospective
2: Series. The best mind f- yet.
1: You can find the other episodes of the Philip K. Dick Retrospective Series at NowPlayingPodcast.com in the archive section, as well as our reviews of other classic movie series including Predator, Terminator, Star Trek, Rambo, The Karate Kid, A Nightmare on Elm Street, and many more. No doubt the precogs have already seen this. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a positive review on iTunes. A link to our iTunes feed can be found at our website, nowplayingpodcast.com. You can also support Now Playing by making a donation using the Donate button at the bottom of our homepage. Your donations help keep Now Playing on the air.
2: We hope you enjoyed the ride!
1: (laughs) You can follow Now Playing on Facebook and Twitter, where the hosts post movie mini-reviews, as well as announcements of new episodes. Links to our social media pages can be found at nowplayingpodcast.com. Now Playing presents the Philip K. Dick Retrospective Series podcasts are edited by Jay. I've seen every
3: possible ending here.
1: None of them are good to do. The films discussed in this series are the intellectual property of their respective trademark holders, and no infringement is intended. The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the opinions of Manganza Media Incorporated. The pre are never wrong, but occasionally they do disagree. Now playing is copyrighted and trademarked Venganza Media Incorporated, 2011,
3: All Rights Reserved. Tom Cruise, War of the Worlds.
0: Which, if we ever review that, will be the first Dakota Fanning movie review we now <laughs> playing. Oh, I'm going to stop with that. I'm just kidding. <laughs>
3: <laughs> it's probably in keeping of Washington's long history that a cop would be using drugs.
0: Okay.
2: I mean come on, the bitch set him up.
0: <laughs> the spider droids, later on when they're trying to search for him in that building and they all scan the eyes. It's creepy, but at the same time a very Spielbergian kind of thing.
3: They I thought it was the batteries not included again. I'm like, did he do they have a three picture deal with Spielberg? What is up with them freaking coming back?
0: And these cars that look like Tron cars that really and drive themselves. Yeah, Johnny Caps.
3: I, um, I wish he had that now driving on the LA Freeway tonight <laughs> <laughs> and pitch directly to you. And I got to tell you, they're going to figure this out. Has Facebook that already done to. that?
0: <laughs> yeah, pretty much. You're right, Jacob. But, <laughs> And that's and also that's the sequel will handle that when it's called America's Most Wanted. He'll start a whole <laughs> TV show looking based on his kidnapping of his.
3: Hey, cops scene. got a cameo in here. You I loved
0: that? it. I loved it. <laughs> I the same same theme song fifty years later. It was brilliant.
3: It will still be on in two thousand fifty four. <laughs> I can tell you, they are not going to end that show ever, and we're not running out of criminals.